With the 100-year anniversary of the martyrdom of Vargo and his son Ruhollah at hand, this presentation is only a humble tribute to their memory. This window will not open just to the life story of two shining stars of the faith. It will recount 150 years of the history of the illustrious family of Vargo. This family not only offer two martyrs at the threshold of the blessed beauty, but also has the unique distinction of being the only family with the grandfather, father and son successively elevated to the rank of hand of the cause. With that in mind, let this window from these ageless windows to the past open to the endless horizon of selfless dedication and infinite skies of service and sacrifice. Let us sit back and open the window wide so nothing will be missed. Just look at them. How free and happy they look. Can't you see them? Well, friends, this is the window of imagination which brings the past to life. In this mortal world, how confining are the dimensions of time and space. After all that past, someday was someone's future, and your and my present and future will become someone else's past. Just an illusion. Now that you are with me, we can all watch it together. Of all the wonders spread before us, two heavenly doves catch our eyes. We will follow their mesmerizing flight through this elusive mortal world and see how they weather successive turbulences, each one lifting them higher until they soared towards the apex, disappearing into that timeless and spaceless world. The father was Mirza Ali Muhammad Varga, whose fluent pen gave him the surname of Silver-Tongued Nightingale. The title of Varga, meaning dove, was conferred upon him by Baha'u'llah. In the course of this story, we shall refer to him as Varga. The rank of hand of the cause was accorded posthumously by Abdul Baha, and Shoghi Effendi designated him as one of the 19 apostles of Baha'u'llah. His son, Ruhullah, at his tender age was called by Baha'u'llah Janabi Muballir, meaning the Honorable Baha'i Teacher. Ruhullah, meaning the Spirit of God, is one of the titles of Christ. Their photograph taken while under chain in the prison during their last days has adorned the cover of this tape. How did it all begin? We turn the pages of history back to the first couple years of this dispensation. 
What you're going to hear is extracted from six books. Four in English, which are memorial to the faithful by Abdul Baha. God Passes By by Shoghi Effendi. Eminent Baha'is in the Time of Baha'u'llah by Hand of the Cause H.M. Baluzi. And The Revelation of Baha'u'llah, Volume 4 by Adib Tahir Zaudeh. The two books in Persian are Masabihi Hidayat, Volume 1 by Azizullah Suleimani, and Khushahai as Kharmani Adab Bahunar, Volume 5, published by Landic Academy in Switzerland. The early believers whose names you will hear are among the spiritual giants who were so magnetized by the love of Baha'u'llah that the guardian states, the like of whom will not rise again. Martha Ruth, in the West, called the foremost hand of the cause by the guardian, was in that category. In that holy year of 1844, a spark was ignited by the Bab in Shiraz, the flame of which soon engulfed the whole country of Persia, now called Iran. The first city which became emblazed was Shiraz. The second year after the declaration of the Bab, the king, both alarmed and interested, sent his most learned and trusted man, Sayyid Yahya Darabi, later to be known as Vahid, to Shiraz to investigate the cause of the Bab. Vahid on his way stopped in another southern city called Yazd, and in a large square proclaimed the nature of his assignment by the king. Then occurred one of the greatest and most exciting events in the history of the faith which amazes the mind. An encounter between worldly knowledge and a manifestation of God. Learn about it by studying the history of the Bab. In the third and last interview, Vahid was struck dumb, and his purpose to defeat the Bab in argument was changed into unshakable belief in the Bab. He wrote to the king about the outcome. After leaving Shiraz, he went through the city of Yazd again, and in the same square, he declared his newly found faith to the anxious and curious crowd. Many became believers on the spot. One of them was Hawji Mullah Mehdiye Atri. He was the father of Varga. He was known for his expertise in making rose water and attar of rose, and thus comes the last name Atri, meaning the perfume maker. He invited all Bobby traveling teachers to teach his wife, who also became a Bobby. He had three sons, Mirza Hussein, Mirza Hassan, and Mirza Ali Muhammad, and one daughter, Bibi Tuba. Mullah Mehdi became a very active teacher. After one of his teaching trips, he arranged a large gathering of the believers, nearly 200, in his house for devotions. This was a bold move compared to the usual secret meetings in small numbers. One of the guests who had a very beautiful voice 
chanted a few times in that gathering. Of course, as was expected in that fanatic city and elsewhere, this resulted in Mullah being summoned the next day to the house of the chief clergyman. After punishment by Bastinado, he was expelled from the city. Apparently a number of the evil clergy had signed his death sentence, but one fair-minded and influential clergyman intervened. The day Mullah Mehdi was arrested, the oldest and the youngest sons went into hiding, and the other son left the city. Now, this was around 1877. Mullah Mehdi took his oldest son Hussein and the youngest Vargal, now 22 years old, and turned their backs to the city of their birth and took the road on foot. From the southern city of Yaz, they directed their steps towards Akka. On their way, they reached the distant city of Tabriz in the northwest, where less than three decades earlier, the Bab had been martyred. There they were the guests of the Ahmadov family. Let us direct our attention to the developments in Tabriz, which would become their new hometown. The city of Tabriz was the domain of the crown prince in the Rajar dynasty. In that period, the king was Nasser Din Shah, and the crown prince was Muzaffaruddin Mirza. Mirza coming at the end of the name means a prince. The chief attendant of this prince was a Baha'i from Nur. Nur is also Baha'u'llah's ancestral home. His name was Mirza Abdullah Khani Nuri. We shall refer to him as Mirza. Mirza soon became acquainted with Vargal and was highly impressed by his charm and knowledge. Varga was learned about literature, well-versed about holy writings of the past and the faith. He also knew the science of the ancient medicine and was an outstanding poet. Mirza had a wife who was from a high-class family from Shah Savan tribe. She strongly opposed the faith and bitterly hated the Baha'is. They had a grown-up daughter, but the wife could not bear another child. Mirza, badly wishing to have company of Varga, told his wife that there are these new people passing through the city, and one of whom has the knowledge of medicine. Maybe they could invite them for supper, so Varga could prescribe some remedy to cure her. Desperately wanting another child, she agreed. After supper, Varga prescribed a pearly pill. However, before the evening was over, Mirza told his wife privately that maybe they should ask Varga and the family to stay as their guest to see if the medicine will become effective or not. Well, she consented to that also. Before long, it was discovered that she was pregnant. 
Mirza told her that he had pledged to God that whoever gives them the bounty of another child, he would give his daughter to marry him. The wife felt very reluctant. Her family background and the wealth of the position of Mirza made her very conceited. The thought of giving her precious daughter to a stranger who not only was a Baha'i but also was considered by her to be below her class was very hard to swallow. Mirza showed his concern that if he does not keep his pledge, they might lose the unborn baby, so she found herself at an impasse and consented, not knowing what a bounty entered into their lives, and may God have mercy on her soul for what she did later on. Well, you guessed it right. The next event was a big wedding for Mirza's daughter. Sometimes after the wedding, Varga, his father, Mullah Mehdi, and the oldest brother, Mirza Hussein, took the road on foot towards Akka. Having ill-fitting shoes, Mullah's feet became lacerated, and by the time they reached Beirut, he was quite ill. However, he insisted that they should go on. Towards the end, Mullah Mehdi nearly dragged himself and unfortunately died at Mazra'i before attaining the presence of Baha'u'llah. During that time, Baha'u'llah resided part of the time in either Mazra'i or Akka. Abdul Baha stated that he built the grave of Mullah Mehdi with his own hands. Mullah Mehdi and Mirza Hussein, the oldest son, twice before had attained the presence of Baha'u'llah when he was in Baghdad. It was sometime before 1860. It was Mirza Hussein who, after his second visit, took the first copy of the hidden board to Yaz and intimated to the friends that Baha'u'llah was the promised one before Baha'u'llah had declared himself. Attaining the presence of Baha'u'llah was the first time for Varga and the third for Mirza Hussein, now this time in Akka, and took place sometime in 1878 or 1879. It magnetized and transformed Mirza Ali Muhammad Varga, who was in his twenties, into a spiritual giant. When he saw Baha'u'llah for the first time, he found Baha'u'llah's face very familiar, but could not remember where or when he had seen him before. This was puzzling him until after several times in his presence, one day Baha'u'llah told him, Varga, asnaum oham rabbesuzan, meaning, burn away the idols of vain imaginings. By hearing these words, he remembered his childhood dream. In that dream, he saw himself playing in a garden with some dolls, and God arrived. God took the dolls away and threw them in the fire. When his parents heard about his strange dream, he was told firmly that no one could see God and should never repeat it 
so he forgot all about it. Yes, indeed. That was when he saw Baha'u'llah's face. Imagine, that was about two decades earlier when Baha'u'llah was in Baghdad. He appeared in that child's dream and made him, as Abdul Baha stated, a dedicated believer from his early years. Another time, while at the presence of Baha'u'llah, a thought occurred to him that he believed in Baha'u'llah as a supreme manifestation, but how we wished Baha'u'llah would give him a sign to that effect. In a flash, a verse from Quran came to his mind. He wished in his heart that Baha'u'llah might repeat that verse as a sign. Didn't take too long when Baha'u'llah in the course of his utterance mentioned that very verse. Of course, Varga was delighted and overjoyed. But listen to this. He told himself, could this have been a mere coincidence? Abruptly, Baha'u'llah turned to him and said, In Hamkaf in Abud, wasn't this sufficient proof to you? Now Varga was shaken and dumbfounded, but assured. Varga never doubted Baha'u'llah, but it was his human way of asking for confirmation, and what a confirmation he received. He reached a pinnacle of certitude, and as a flame of fire and a tower of strength returned to Tabriz, now his new hometown. He had four sons, Azizullah, Ruhullah, Waliullah, and Badiullah. The youngest died in childhood. His father-in-law, Mirza Abdullah, introduced him to the crown prince, who recognized his depth of knowledge and talents. So, before the gatherings of the learned, the prince would tell Mirza, his chief attendant, don't forget to bring your son-in-law, meaning Varga. Varga's poetry was one of the highlights of these gatherings, and the prince would praise and honor him with precious awards. It was at one of these gatherings where an unbelievable subject was brought up and Varga defended the cause. The learned clergy present said, These Baha'is used to serve dates in their firesides to convert the innocent Muslims. After discovering this, people avoided eating dates. Eating dates, of course, in firesides. Now they have come up with a new trick. They make extract of date into a pill which the speaker holds between his fingers. As their bewitching words make the jaws of the listeners drop open, the speaker shoot the pill into each one's mouth, and that is a reason for such a large number of conversions. Varga, who in the past had limited himself to reading his poetry, asked the prince if he could make a comment. He said, I have knowledge of medicine and am aware of many extracts, but never heard about the date extract. Such pill-throwing requires years of practice and marksmanship 
so they don't miss the mouth. And thirdly, regardless of how eloquent a speaker, seldom does one see every jaw dropping off. And finally, if the pill gets into the mouth, people still have to swallow it, which no one has reported so far. Well, the clergy was deflated, and most likely the prince was amused. Varga did extensive travel teaching and effectively spread the cause, and in the process occasionally suffered abuse. His home life was not pleasant, and the mother-in-law was the culprit. In 1883, about four years after his return from pilgrimage, he went to his native city of Yazd. Here I can't help but to mention how many dedicated believers have come from the hot and dry city of Yazd and its suburbs. The immortal Ahmad, the Tahir Zaudeh family, the Yazdi family, the first two trustees of Hogullah, and many others. In addition, that city of narrow streets, tall draft towers, and adobe houses has offered at the threshold of Baha'u'llah seven martyrs during one day at three different times. The most recent was 1980. What a city. May through Baha'u'llah's blessings the ignorant there and elsewhere be guided. The reason for Varga returning to Yazd was to visit his only sister Bibi Tuba, who through her letters lamented their separation. This talk is rather long. We have covered about one-fourth. Do you wish to take a break now? All right, a little later. Soon after his arrival, the same leading clergyman who bastinadoed and expelled his father about five years earlier issued Varga's death sentence. But the government decided to imprison him in chains with hard criminals. He spent one year in that foul prison in Yazd. Then, with stalks on his feet and under chain, he was sent to Esfahan riding on a mule. You can imagine the torture of riding on a mule with weight of the stalks on the ankles for six or seven days to cover that distance. Average distance by mule or horse in those days would cover 25 to 30 miles from sunrise to sunset. On the way to avoid abuse of the attendants, he pretended he was deaf and mute. After his arrival at the prison in Esfahan, a few interesting things happened. A well-known Baha'i poet, Sina, who had just been released from the prison, heard that a Baha'i had been brought to that prison. He went for a visit but was told that the prisoner was mute. As soon as they saw each other and recognized each other, they exchanged greetings and the prisoner shouted that the Baha'is performed a miracle and cured the deaf mute. 
This poet, noticing the foul condition of Vargo's prison, caused his transfer with the help of other believers to the prison of dignitaries which was in better repair. Do you think that was easy? How could Baha'is, who had no clout and constantly were persecuted, effect such a change? The story is fascinating. Zalul Sultan, the prince governor of the province, titled by Baha'u'llah, the infernal tree, wished to eliminate the crown prince and kill the king so he could get to the throne. He sent a confidant to Baha'u'llah in Akka to ask him to order the believers to kill the king. Rebuffed and told by Baha'u'llah that the cause of God is not a plaything for politics, the confidant returned to Iran. On one of his subversive trips to Tabriz, the confidant was arrested by his target, the crown prince. Upon discovery of the plot, the order for execution by hanging was issued, but the chief attendant, Mirza Abdullah, Vargo's father-in-law intervened, and the confidant returned safely to Esfahan. The Baha'is learning about this went to the confidant and told him, Vargo, who is in the foul prison, is the son-in-law of the man in Tabriz who saved your life. Now is your turn to return the favor. So Varga was transferred to the prison for dignitaries, but still was in chains with stocks on his feet. That bloodthirsty prince governor, upset and disappointed in Baha'u'llah's lack of cooperation, caused the martyrdom of seven martyrs in Yazd through his son who was the governor of Yazd. Varga was chained to a prominent son of a murdered tribal chief who was at odds with the government. He soon converted him, and this had a chain effect in the tribe. The prince governor at times used to visit the prominent prison mate of Varga, and Varga's poetry charmed them both. First, the stalks were removed from his feet, and later he was freed. Three decades later, this fiendish prince, fallen from power, was in France. Upon seeing Abdul Baha in Paris, he tried to make excuses for many martyrdoms when he was a governor. In course of conversation, he said this about Varga. He was one of the greatest men of Iran, if not the greatest. Let us go to a more pleasant part of Varga's life, an uplift that he badly needed. Varga was granted the privilege of a second pilgrimage. This was about one year before the ascension of Baha'u'llah. He took two of his older sons, Azizullah and Ruhullah, as well as his father-in-law with him. Ruhullah was seven years old. 
In that tender age, he manifested unusual depth in the faith. Having inherited his father's poetic talent, his intense poetry testify to the purity of his soul and true understanding of the station of Baha'u'llah. Soon we shall witness the glow of this gifted star. Once to compliment Varqa, Baha'u'llah asked for him and told Varqa, since he had knowledge of medicine, he should prescribe medicine for Baha'u'llah as he did not feel well. That evening again he summoned Varqa and told him he had taken the medicine and as a patient he liked his physician. Oh, what a compliment! Another day, Vargo asked Baha'u'llah how the faith would become universally accepted. Baha'u'llah answered, now remember, this was in 1891, that the nations will fully arm themselves and like bloodthirsty beasts attack each other, resulting in tremendous bloodshed. Then the wise from all nations would investigate the cause of this and conclude that prejudice is the cause, the worst being religious prejudice. Then they try to eliminate religion as the culprit, but soon they realize that man cannot exist without religion. Then they would study the teachings of all religions to see which one addresses the requirements of the age. That is the time that the faith would become universal. Then Baha'u'llah spoke about the heavenly qualities of Abdul Baha. He said in the world there exists a phenomenon that in various tablets he had referred to as the most great elixir. Christ had this phenomenon and see what influence he exerted upon the world after his crucifixion. He truly revolutionized the world. Then he said, Look at the master who so patiently deals with all kinds of people. He also possesses this power. Varga then realized who would succeed Baha'u'llah and was filled with joy. He prostrated at the feet of Baha'u'llah and begged him to accept him and one of his sons as a sacrifice in the path of Abdul Baha to which Baha'u'llah consented. Begging for martyrdom might sound rather strange to some of you. Please permit me to quote from Adib Tahirzadeh's book, The Revelation of Baha'u'llah, Volume 4. Quote, It is not possible for those of us who have not reached that level of utter devotion to Baha'u'llah and have not become intoxicated with the wine of his revelation to understand the motive of a high-minded person, talented and well-balanced, in seeking to give his life for the cause. These people 
who sought martyrdom must have attained the pinnacle of faith and assurance. They must have seen with their spiritual eyes a glimpse of the inner reality of their Lord. In most cases, Baha'u'llah discouraged the friends and in his tablets urged the believers to protect their lives so they could teach the cause. End quote. Perhaps you know that a pioneer who dies while pioneering in a foreign land has the station of a martyr. Apparently, Valgo wanted to make sure he had heard right, so after his return he wrote to Baha'u'llah about his wish, which had been granted, and Baha'u'llah confirmed it in writing. After the ascension, when Vargo attained the presence of Abdu'l-Baha, he made a reference to that promise, and the master also confirmed it. So you see, the martyrdom was inevitable. Maybe I should stop here, because now for sure you know the ending, and usually it is the mystery of the ending which keeps the audience anxious. However, I guarantee that soon you will agree that every step of this unusual story not only is touching, but equally is inspiring and educational. Let us continue and see what seven-year-old Ruhullah did during that pilgrimage. He truly was a spiritual prodigy. One day Baha'u'llah asked Ruhullah, what did you do today? He answered, I attended a Baha'i class. Baha'u'llah said, what was the subject? He answered, the return of the prophets. Will you explain it? Baha'u'llah asked. He replied, by return it is meant the return of realities and qualities. Baha'u'llah said, these are the exact words of your teacher, which you are repeating like a parrot. Say it in your own words. He replied, It is like cutting a flower from a plant this year. The next year's flower will look exactly like this one, but it is not the same one. Baha'u'llah praised the child and often called him Janabi Muballigh, meaning his honor, the Baha'i teacher. This was easy compared to the next occasion, which shows you how sharp Ruhullah's faculties were. Once Baha'u'llah asked him, What did you do at home? He answered that he taught the faith and told the people that the promised one has come. Now comes a tough question that I am not sure how an adult would have answered it. Baha'u'llah said, What do you do if it were found that the message of the Bab was not authentic and the true promised one appeared? The young boy instantaneously answered, I would try to teach him the Baha'i faith. Imagine how accurate, how deep, and how spontaneous. I wish I were worthy enough to say bravo. 
Ruhullah received a well-deserved praise from his Lord. Ruhullah was not an ordinary child. At his young age, he composed beautiful poetry, and he would speak about the faith in gatherings of the clergy and men of learning. His answers were simple but profound. After his return to Tabriz, Barqa continued his extensive travel teaching, and one of his converts is the subject of the next exciting story. Before I tell you that, don't you wish you could be in Barqa's home and hear the conversation of the young Ruhullah and the hostile grandmother? No doubt, both his grandmother and mother were a handful, but I have a notion they were no match to that young spiritual giant. Anyway, the convert you are going to hear about was the artist who made a portrait of the Bab. His name was Agabala Bege Nakashbashi. Nakashbashi means the chief artist. After his conversion, he told Varga how in Orumiye, the Bab rode the unruly horse which the mayor had given him to test him. He said, I was among the anxious crowd who flooded the house of the mayor to have a glance at the miracle maker, the Bab. After seeing him, I decided to draw his picture, so I focused intently upon his face. When the Bab noticed me, he fixed his cloak on his knee and posed with his hand on the clock. Obviously, the Bob understood the intention of the artist who was among the crowd. They had not been introduced. To continue the narrative, I left the room and made a rough sketch on a paper and went back a couple more times. Every time I went in, the Bob resumed the same position and would look at me. Oh, what a majestic scene. He later composed a full-scale portrait in black and white. Vaga wrote to Baha'u'llah about this tremendous discovery. Baha'u'llah instructed Varga to have the artist make two watercolor copies, one to be sent to himself and the other to be kept by Varga. When Baha'u'llah received this copy, the brother of the wife of the Bab, Afnane Kabir, was in Akka. Baha'u'llah asked him how much did the drawing resemble the Bab, and he confirmed that it was an accurate likeness. Then Baha'u'llah sent his own fur overcoat as a gift to the artist. Unfortunately, during Varga's later imprisonment in Tehran, this drawing, that means Varga's copy, and many other precious items were confiscated by the captors. Abdul Baha has stated that in the future, this portrait and other relics will be returned to the Varga family. The original portrait in black and white, which was kept by the artist, was found much later by a believer, Sayyid Asadullahi Ghumi, who took it to the Holy Land and presented it to Abdu'l-Baha.
This is a good time to take a break. This exciting story is rather long, and I prefer not to sacrifice any details in the interest of time. As you are having your break, 
I looked through the side window and saw what nearly curdled my blood. I saw a monstrous serpent stalking Varga. Was it a she-serpent? Most probably. I saw something like a flood, but the color of water was the color of blood. Then I saw the eye of a fierce storm approaching these heavenly doves. I wanted to see no more. As I shut my eyes, you came back. Please ignore the unpleasant things I just told you. Let us see what happened next. The last and third trip to Akka was in 1893, one year after the ascension of Baha'u'llah. Varga took the two oldest sons, Azizullah and Ruhullah, now nine years old, to the presence of Abdul Baha. The master and his sister, the greatest holy leaf, showed special admiration and love for Ruhullah. One day, Ruhullah, his brother, and other children were playing outside when the greatest holy leaf asked Ruhullah and his brother to come in. Also in the room were the two sons of Baha'u'llah, Mirza Badi'ullah, and Mirza Ziaullah. These two later joined their older brother, Mirza Muhammad Ali, and rose against Abdul Baha, and thus became covenant breakers. The greatest holy leaf asked Ruhullah's older brother, What did you do while in Persia? Ruhullah answered, We taught the faith. She asked, By saying what? He replied, God has manifested himself. Rather surprised, she said, Tell me, did you say this to everyone? He said, No, only to the people who were receptive. How could you tell who was receptive, she asked. By looking into their eyes, was his answer. She laughed heartily and told Ruhullah, Come and look into my eyes and tell me what do you see. He came and intently looked into her eyes and said, You already believe in this word. Well, you might think or say that this was obvious, but listen to this about the two young sons of Baha'u'llah and Ruhullah's insight. She asked him to look into the eyes of those two sons of Baha'u'llah who were doing their schoolwork. He looked into their eyes searchingly and commented, They are not worth looking into. Imagine saying that about two sons of Baha'u'llah who were respected by everyone and who had not yet shown any sign of covenant breaking. This power of seeing the future of those youth was beyond the power of an ordinary nine-year-old child. As was mentioned before, his poetry demonstrates the depth of his faith and understanding of the real purpose of life. Another time, while playing, one of the playmates said indecent words and was chastised by Ruhullah, which made his mouth bleed. 
children ran to the pilgrim house to inform Varga. Ruhollah, knowing what was coming, ran to Abdul Baha's house and entered his room where Abdul Baha told him to sit down. As Abdul Baha's back was towards the window, Varga appeared at the window and beckoned Ruhollah to come out. But Ruhollah kept nodding his head, meaning no. Abdul Baha said, What is wrong that you keep moving your head? He admitted what he had done, and Abdul Baha called Varga in and strongly cautioned him never to treat Ruhollah harshly. From then on, Varga treated his young son with respect. That made it apparent to Varga which of his three sons would have the honor of martyrdom with him as he had requested in the past from Baha'u'llah. As was said before, in our spiritual level, it is impossible to comprehend the desire for martyrdom and its significance in the world of God. After the return to Tabriz, Varga's mother-in-law, seeing how the grandchildren were being raised with Baha'i spirit, intensified her hostility. She demanded that Varga must divorce her daughter. In that culture, only men could divorce. Varga's father-in-law disapproved of it and advised Varga to keep distance by travel teaching throughout the large province. The storm of mother-in-law picks up momentum. But what does it do to Varga? We shall see. The situation turns hectic. Other adverse events feed this storm, but Varga's wings are strong. The enemies of Varga's father-in-law, the prominent man, poison the goodwill of the crown prince by accusing the father-in-law of holding secret meetings with Baha'is plotting his assassination. As soon as Mirza heard about it, he left Tabriz for Tehran, the capital. The mad mother-in-law, seeing the coast clear, implemented her first near-fatal strike. She went to a leading clergyman, who also was a relative, telling him the activities of her son-in-law and ask him to issue a death sentence for Varga. You might smile at the legal system and simple and fast court hearing for capital punishment in those days, some of it still existing in Iran. He did not care about the faith, but being fair-minded said, how can I issue such a verdict not knowing the accused. She said, no problem. I will easily prove it to you. She went home to Ruhollah and said, a friend of your father wishes to meet you. Ruhollah accompanied her to the house of the clergyman, thinking he was a Baha'i friend of his father. As he entered, he greeted him with Allahu Abha, which did not sit too well with the clergyman. After exchange of a few pleasantries, she said that her grandson, less than ten years old, 
could recite the obligatory prayer by heart. Let us hear it, was the man's response. Ruholo asked for the direction of the Rebleh, and after ablution, recited the long obligatory prayer with all its positions. Spellbound by the sweetness of his voice, and impressed by the holy words, as soon as he finished the prayer, the clergyman angrily turned to the grandmother and said, You should be ashamed of yourself, asking me to issue a death sentence for a man who raises such a God-worshipping son, and told her to leave at once. Frustrated, yes, but defeated, no. Her will was as strong as her wealth and social standing. She was resolved to destroy Varga, and nothing could stop her. She always got anything she wanted, except her son-in-law. Varga was forced into her life. Now she decided to take the matter in her own vicious hands. Will this storm sweep Varga off his feet before he could cherish the promise of his Lord? Or is this the end? Let us direct the window toward Varga's mother-in-law's mansion and see what transpired in the private quarters. She called her trusted and husky servant and offered a very generous reward should he oblige her by killing Varga. Maybe she said how distressed she was with her husband fleeing the city and Varga's waywardness. He was stone-faced about the whole thing. Could it be the reward was not high enough? But it was more than generous. Well, what do you think? His master, who was fond of Varga, had fled the city and now the lady is in charge and could protect him. Maybe he needs time to think it over. To her, every step of this plan so far was progressing well, and there was no reason that this one should fail. After all, the servant was a good Muslim and would be glad to get rid of that heretic Varga. Let me tell you a secret that she does not know. It is rather critical, and the life of Varga depends on it. Well, the servant had been converted by Varga to become a dedicated Baha'i. Keep this to yourself, and wait and see what did the servant do. No, he did not kill her instead. I told you he was a good Baha'i. Well, by now you can tell that this storm turned into a breeze and bypassed Varga. But still, you like to know what did the servant do? He did what any decent person would do. He privately informed Varga about her resolve, and that, when disappointed in him, she would hire another assassin who would undoubtedly finish the job. This left Varga with no choice except to leave that house quietly in the middle of the night.
He already had lowered his books and tablets to a window to the sidewalk. And after he left, he went to a believer's home. The next morning, when his wife and mother-in-law had taken the youngest son to the public bath, he returned home and took his two other sons, Azizullah and Ruhullah, with him. Varga wrote to his father-in-law, now in Tehran, about the situation. He answered by advising Varga to divorce his wife and that he was doing the same. The mother and daughter went their own ways. Both remarried but ended miserably. As for the degree of hatred of the mother-in-law, it is sufficient to say that when she heard about Varga's martyrdom, she gave a festive banquet celebrating the news. May God have mercy on her soul. What do you think happened to the youngest son of Varga, Waliullah, who was left behind? Well, his mother and grandmother were not going to let him slip through their fingers, both spiritually and physically. The grandmother was determined to raise him as a Muslim. One of her brainwashing techniques was that every day while praying, he had to sit by her. At the end of prayer, she would supplicate to God in these words, O God, should this boy become a good Muslim, give him a long and prosperous life, and if not, take his life before he gets any older. And he was required to say Amen to that. That kind of polluted atmosphere brought great grief and confusion to young Waliullah. After reaching adulthood, his uncle, Mirza Hussein, rescued him and washed away all the impurities instilled into his innocent mind. He became a devoted believer and later on attained the presence of Abdu'l-Baha. During the ministry of Shoghi Effendi, that youngest son of the illustrious Varga became the trustee of Hugullah and later a hand of the cause. Janabi Waliullah Varga passed away at the age of 71 in 1955. He lived a long prosperous life as supplicated by his ignorant grandmother who did not know that a good and true Muslim is none but a devoted Baha'i. Now we are entering a calm period between the storms in the life of Varga. Varga left his second hometown of Tabriz with heavy heart and headed for the city of Zanjan, taking his two older sons with him. He had visited that city three times before on his trip to Tehran. They stayed with Ummi Ashraf, one of the greatest heroines, having lost her husband and son as martyrs and the recipient of many tablets from Baha'u'llah. After some time, Varga married 
her granddaughter, Lerao'iye Khanum. During those peaceful years, Valga continued his teaching activities and most likely the two sons enjoyed their new life in a loving Baha'i atmosphere, free of sarcasm which they had to endure before. Let us focus our vision on one of the dusty little streets of old Zanjan where Ruhullah and his older brother were walking. A mullah, meaning an Islamic priest, riding a donkey noticed from their clothing that they were not native boys. Being curious, he slowed down his donkey and asked, Whose boys are you? Ruhullah, usually, being the spokesman, answered, Sons of Varga from Yast. What is your name? asked the mullah. Ruhullah was the answer. The mullah said, Wow! What a great name! That is the title of Christ who brought the dead to life. Ruhullah answered, If you stop your donkey, I shall do the same to you. And the mullah, whipping his donkey, said, You must be Baha'is. He definitely was not a receptive soul. Now about two and a half years had passed since Vargo and sons moved to Zanjan. Rumors could be heard that this newcomer, the teacher from Yaz, meaning Varga, had come to Zanjan to mislead the Muslims. Forecast after forecast indicates approach of a destructive storm. Remember the eye of the fierce hurricane I told you about? The deadly attempts of the mother-in-law were now behind and Vargo was safely out of her reach. Vargo outwardly appeared so calm and serene and intensely taught the faith, but inwardly had this anguish in his heart, this yearning in his soul that was consuming his whole being. How much longer? Where and how? These were his unspoken words about the promise, the written promise, and the confirmed promise. Vargo had reached the pinnacle of faith and certitude. As his poetry testify, his heart and soul were focused on love of Baha'u'llah, and that was the flame that was consuming him. He did not wish to become the cause of another upheaval in Zanjan the city where erudite and fierce Hojat with 1,800 believers gave up their lives defending their faith. Since that episode, four decades earlier, that city had witnessed many atrocities. Having had instructions from Abdul Baha to move the tablets and books out of Zanjan, Varga felt prompted to move to Tehran. The plan was to take his two sons with him and the wife would join them later. This also would give him a chance to see his ex-father-in-law who now resided in Tehran. 
A tablet from Abdul Baha arrived, stressing steadfastness in the face of fierce storms of test. The dream of Varga's wife, identical to the dream of a Muslim acquaintance about a flood, the color of blood, the foreboding danger. He had to leave at once, but it was in the dead of winter with roads closed. Horse and mule owners were not willing to tackle the deep snow and ice. As they dragged on, Azizullah, the eldest son, became restless and, without informing anyone, took the road to Tehran on foot. Everything, including tablets and books, were packed in trunks and sealed, ready to go. Only if the weather would cooperate. Finally, the pack animal owners sent a message that the next day they will start. That final night in Zanjan proved not to be their last night there, even though they left early the next morning. That night, Varga, his new father-in-law, and Mirza Hussein, a Baha'i friend, decided to visit the head of the telegraph office, who was a friend to say goodbye and also extend their sympathy for the recent death of his mother. As they were leaving the telegraph office, they were detected by an evil mullah who immediately reported them to the police and the governor was informed. You might wonder, what made it so reportable? In those days, going to the telegraph office had the connotation of possibly sending a petition or complaint to the capital. The governor, having very recently been appointed, was very suspicious. He had no idea that Varga would be leaving early the next morning, accompanied by Ruhollah, now twelve years old, and Varga's father-in-law, Haji Iman. The next day, the governor summoned the believers for questioning. After arresting Mirza Hussein, the attendants reported to the governor that the rest of them had left the city. So the governor ordered his stable master to take men and the fastest horses to intercept Varga, which they did. Fortunately and miraculously, the pack animal carrying the two trunkful of tablets, books, and archival material were not halted. These were taken by the mule driver to the next city, Qazvin, and delivered to a believer. As we get drawn more into these adverse events, you should realize the timing of it all. This was the year of jubilee celebration of 50th year of the coronation of the king Nasruddin Shah, during which the whole country participated in some way. Each sizable city sent a company of soldiers and their equipment to the capital Tehran 
for honoring the occasion. Being exact, the year was 1896, four years after the ascension of Baha'u'llah. The final event in the city of Zanjan and what followed to the very last hour in the life of Varga was from the written memories of Mirza Husseini Zanjani, who was in chains with Varga and Ruhullah. As you recall, Mirza Hussein stayed behind in Zanjan when Varga and Pardi had left the city. Mirza Hussein was arrested shortly after because he had accompanied Varga to the telegraph office and he was in chains and stocks when Varga and Ruhullah and Haji Iman were intercepted and returned to Zanjan. The governor became delighted at seeing Varga captured and abused him verbally. Varga, in answer, said, It is not very becoming of a great man to say such words to a person he does not know. The governor calmed down and somewhat impressed told the attendant to take Varga and Ruhollah to his own quarters and only chain them at night. He even allotted an allowance for their expenses, but the attendant barely used a quarter of it for their food. Haji Iman, the father-in-law, was taken to jail and chained to Mirza Hussein. Their detention in Zanjan lasted 16 days. Many people hearing about them would come to the jail to see how Baha'is look like, just like going to a zoo. The onlookers showed their surprise that they looked like humans and not exotic animals. It should not surprise you to hear that up to present, the ignorant and fanatic are told and believe that Baha'is have tails. Amazing! How much lies and rubbish the clergy introduced to the minds of the Galaba. During those 16 days, Varga had to endure repeated verbal assaults by the clergy and the governor. You see, this was during the month of Ramadan, which is the Islamic fast when people stay up all night and sleep during the fasting hours, of the day. At the governor's directions, encounters were arranged between Varga and the clergy every night after breaking of the fast into the early hours of morning. The governor attended most of them. It was like the evening show, late show, and the late, late show for people to come and go as they please to entertain themselves. At times the governor had to intervene in the fights among the clergy due to contention on how to respond to Varga. I thought I bypassed the details of those 16 days, but it would be shortchanging you. Two incidents will give you an idea 
of what kind of foolishness Varga had to deal with and another one will show you a contrast. One evening a mullah told Varga, I can reveal similar to Baha'u'llah. So we should put ourselves in the place of Varga and see how could we have responded to such assertion in that hostile gathering. Let us think for a while. The assertion of the Mullah was that I could equally reveal words like Baha'u'llah. We could possibly answer that Baha'u'llah's words are powerful and have influence. I don't think that would be so convincing a century ago, particularly when every Mullah had a bunch of devoted followers and the faith did not have the worldwide spread of today. In those days, expert Baha'i teachers such as Mirza Abul Fazl, Varga and others used three methods of teaching the faith. One was through the holy words of the past and prophecies. The second was through logic and reason. The third method was used only when the intention of the non-Baha'i was to argue. In such occasions, the Baha'i teacher used the words of the contender against himself in defense of the faith. Listen and learn the mastery of Varga. Varga asks, After revealing them, should someone ask you whose words are these, what would you answer? He said, of course, mine. Varga said that Baha'u'llah states his words are from God, and people from every religious background have accepted them and given their lives in his path. Now let us be fair. Please provide only one witness from the crowd here to testify to your superior knowledge. No one said a word. Now the ball was in Varga's court. He said, What other proof is there for the truth of Islam except for the holy words of the Qur'an and their influence? Mullah retorted, We have other proofs. Varga said such as, The Mullah said, The traditions of the Imams and the like. Another Mullah in the group shouted, Mullah, you really messed it up. You don't accept the words of Muhammad himself as primary proof and claim the words of his subordinate to prove the validity of Islam? Now the sword you handed to Varga will be used to finish you off. Varga, with his head bowed down, kept silence. A big skirmish began among the clergy. Varga was worried that at any moment they could unleash their hostility towards him and kill him. So he spoke up, Please, gentlemen, do not act like school children in front of the honorable governor. And suddenly the governor came out of his deep thought and said, 
Vargo is right. Behave yourselves and speak one at a time. The following episode will demonstrate the contrast between the fortitude of the believers and the weakness of the Muslims in such tense gatherings. A young Muslim man, the son-in-law of one of the officers present, showed his fair-mindedness through his attitude towards the prisoners. His father-in-law, to tease him, told two attendants to put a chain around his neck, accusing him of becoming a Baha'i. As it was being done, he became speechless, trembled, and fainted flat on the floor. After being revived, he was told, Why such timidity for only a joke compared to the boy's fortitude? Meaning Ruhullah. He answered, Because he is different. He is a Baha'i. In the last encounter during those 16 days in Zanjan, Varga was referring to some of the prophecies in Christian and Jewish holy books when one mullah, as a matter of fact, said, These books of Christians and Jews are false and altered. The original books disappeared in the sky. Before Varga could say a word, the governor said, Enough of such absurd talk, which silenced everyone. Then the governor turned to Varga and asked, Why, with such erudition and eloquence, have you risen to destroy Islam? Keep what is in your heart and just say the words, I am not a Baha'i. He promised Varga to place him on his right side in all gatherings and an allowance of 1,002 months which was a very large sum of money those days. Varga refused to recant. Disappointed in not being able to bend Varga's will, the governor told Varga, I did my best to save you, but you have left me with no choice. However, I prefer not to stain my hands with your blood. Tomorrow I will send you and your son to Tehran, and will kill Mirza Hussein by tying him to the muzzle of a cannon. Varga privately told the governor, Mirza was asked by the king to come to Zanjan, and besides, his son-in-law was the interpreter for the Russian consulate. Your involvement in his execution might be detrimental for you. Why not send him also with us to Tehran and let someone else be the instrument? After a long pause, the governor agreed to send them all in custody of the commander of a cavalry company headed for the jubilee in Tehran. Depravity and meanness being their characteristic, they had to charge the family of Mirza Hussein for the expenses of the horse used for his travel. In recent events in Iran, one century later, their torture-monger descendants, 
have continued the disgusting trade by forcing the family to pay for the cost of bullets used to martyr the believers. They did not have the decency of letting Varga ride a horse with a regular saddle. His horse had filled saddle bags which made riding very painful because of the stalks on his feet. At times he said that it felt as if his legs were coming off his body. Stalks are two heavy blocks of wood locked on each ankle. The attendants brought a long chain to chain Varga and Mirza Hussein together, but found it impractical for such a long ride to Tehran on separate horses. Therefore, Mirza Hussein ended up carrying the entire chain on his neck all the way to Tehran in addition to the stocks on his feet. But ironically, he survived the whole ordeal to relate to us the terrible chain of events in the life of Varga and others. At their first stop for overnight stay, the three were given a room, but soon the attendants came and took them to encounter the notables and mullahs. They saw soldiers lined up armed with rifles ready to shoot. Seeing that, it occurred to Varga and Mirza Hussein that they moved them out of Zanjan to be killed in that village. After being confounded by Varga's answers, one mullah shouted, Why aren't such heretics killed? You faithful Muslims, what are you waiting for? Let us kill them. No one responded to such wrathful call. Maybe the soldiers were posted to keep the order. As soon as the clergy were baffled by Varga's knowledge and audacity, they focused on Ruhullah not knowing his depth. Upon questioning, Ruhullah said, I am like you folks. They all became delighted, thinking he meant that he was a Muslim. Varga interrupted their joy and to their chagrin said, Ruhollah means he has followed the faith of his father, just the way you gentlemen have blindly followed the faith of your fathers. By hearing this, the rage had no bounds. They again began their noisy call for blood. Why don't you kill them, seeing how they insult your clergy? Again, no one made a move. Defeated by lack of response, the clergy said, Why this rude boy's feet are not in stocks? Then a carpenter was called in to fit the stocks on Ruhullah's ankle. The carpenter showed such exuberance as if he was given the reward of this world and the next. The commander of the cavalry and his officers in charge of the believers were fair-minded. They served them proper meals, but one attendant was mean, particularly towards Varga. You can imagine 
on those cold, snow-covered roads, how painful it would be to ride over a saddlebag with your thighs, a parched, and the weight of the stalks hanging on each ankle. As if this was not bad enough torture for Varga, the attendant at times would whip Varga's horse for the sudden jerk to hurt him even more. Many of these ignorant people believed and still believe that the more vicious they could treat Baha'is, the higher the reward will be in heaven. What a surprise awaiting them!
Anyway, once when the attendant ignored the instruction of his superior not to torment Varga, Varga told him, May God judge between you and I. The attendant, quite angry, galloped his horse to a spot by a spring to relax and smoke. As the cavalry got closer, they saw him on the ground writhing in pain. He was shouting, My belly is on fire. I am dying. Help me. Varga prescribed some remedy, but shortly the attendant died. Now look at Varga's benevolence. He felt quite guilty because he thought it was his words which caused the man's suffering and death. He said, Had he known that his wishes would be so quickly answered, he should have prayed for his guidance. He said we should never curse our ignorant enemies, but pray for them. Here I wish to interject that those of us who believe in Baha'u'llah and have his teachings are more answerable for our actions than the ignorant. The officer in charge of the prisoners at the end of the trip became a Baha'i. How could he have done otherwise after witnessing everything firsthand? Upon their arrival in Tehran, they were placed in the stable of the father of the commander of the cavalry. The next day, Azizullah, the oldest son of Varga, who had left Zanjan earlier, came to visit them. Varga advised him not to return for the fear of being recognized and arrested. That day they took the prisoners in chains surrounded by guards and attendants with the executioners dressed in red in the forefront. The usual multitude of onlookers gathered to watch the march. They were taken for interrogation to the government building where they were sentenced to be imprisoned. The prison chosen for them was where 60 notorious highway robbers and murderers were kept in chains. They brought their heaviest chain of Karagohar, nearly 110 pounds, which 44 years earlier had been placed on Baha'u'llah's blessed neck. All four, Barga, Ruhullah, Mirza Hussein, and Haji Iman, Varga's father-in-law, were chained together. Ruhullah's tender neck and body could not support the weight, so they put a wooden support for his segment of the chain. From the very first day, the captors, high and low alike, began looting Varga's belongings. 
Hajibur Dawla, the murderer to be, who was the highest in rank and in charge of torture and execution of all who were considered enemies of the state, took the portrait of the Bab and gave it to the king. The next in line insisted on taking a white robe which had belonged to Baha'u'llah. Varga begged in vain for him to leave it alone. Not only did he take it, but the depraved man appeared dressed in it to taunt Varga. At the end, when all was gone, Varga remarked that everything precious was taken away, but it was a worthwhile sacrifice in the path of God. Mirza Hussein writes that they had fastened the heavy chains on them in order to be bribed for exchange for a lighter chain, and since they did not have money, the chain stayed on. They even starved them. There was a well-to-do man who had been disfavored by the government but was allowed to keep a servant in prison to attend his needs. The captors tried to starve the Baha'is by not giving them the usual meager prison ration. The wealthy man, seeing the situation, ordered the favorite Persian dish of chilo kebab for all prisoners. Every prisoner was given a dish by the attendants, except the Baha'is. When the servant told the rich man about what did the attendants do, he flew into a rage and ordered a new supply of deluxe cello kebab with all garnishings for the Baha'is, who savored it after days of starvation. Imagine the first round when in front of the starving Baha'is dishes were passed to others. If you ever have tasted or smelled cello kebab, you would understand what I mean. The rich man was her to say, My purpose for feeding all these weeds was to feed a few flowers among them, and no one should have stopped my intention. He was very kind. He even gave money to everyone so Baha'is could benefit too. What a contrast! Now the jubilee was drawing near. Varga's ex-father-in-law, who was in Tehran, sent a message to Varga to compose a poem for the occasion that it might please the king, so he would order the release. Varga answered that his pen and tongue have moved only to praise Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha. He did not wish to lie, and also he did not wish to pollute his poetic talent. Mirza Hussein writes, One night, when Ruhullah was asleep under the chains, Varga caressed his twelve-year-old son's face and said, O oh God, I pray that this sacrifice of mine be accepted by you. When I heard this, it tore my heart, and I went out of my mind. I wept quietly until 
I regained my senses. And suddenly a great feeling of detachment from this mortal life dawned on me. The next day a photographer was brought to the prison to take the only picture of us for Baha'is in chain. While photos were being taken, Varga was noticeably trembling under those chains. Mirza writes, I asked Varga about the reason. Varga replied, Taking photo of prisoners has an obvious meaning and that a fierce test is approaching. Upon hearing this, I began to tremble and started to pray. You may wonder why Varga, who begged Baha'u'llah for martyrdom, now was trembling, realizing the nearness of the hour. You see, it was his physical side he was afraid of. Didn't Jesus Christ on the day before his crucifixion, knowing exactly what was coming, pray, O Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Another emotional up and down agonizing Varga. Within the past couple months, he saw the soldiers with cocked guns at first stop during the transfer from Zanjan to Tehran. Then, later in Tehran, they were marched behind the executioners dressed in red. Neither was the answer to his wish. Now, this time, with their photo taken, the hour was as much at hand as it could ever get. But he heard the jovial prisoners so excited about the nearness of the jubilee. They were talking that the king had pledged to pardon and release all prisoners on that occasion so they could pray in gratitude for his long life. Those agonizing hours did not last too long, when the eye of that ferocious storm swiftly changed direction. The velocity of the storm is now building up by the minute. Then came that fatal Friday before the day of Jubilee, being exact the first day of May, 1896. The king had been in the habit of on Fridays going to a shrine near Tehran. How could he miss it on this festive and historical occasion? An anarchist pan-Islamist political faction, which was both anti-monarchy and anti-Baha'i, heard that Barga and a few Baha'is were thrown into the prison and a trunk full of Baha'i books was confiscated. They found the timing perfect to strike. They plotted the assassination of the king, being certain that Baha'is would be blamed for. You see, forty-four years earlier, three revengeful young Babis inflamed by the martyrdom of the Bab tried to kill the same king, which failed. That time the king was about twenty years old. 
Now, in their calculation, they had nothing to lose. One bullet and two targets. The king dead and the Baha'is massacred. Their assassin hid within the shrine and on that bloody Friday, when the king entered the interior of the shrine, he pretended to deliver a petition to the king when, at point blank, he shot the king in the heart. As it had to be, even his death did not stop the oppressive measures he and his underlings had viciously championed during the dark and long period of his reign. As soon as the fiendish Haujibot Dole, the top man who had taken the Bab's portrait from Valga, heard about the king's assassination, his blood began to boil. He was the same person who, for the four years earlier, after the attempt on the life of the king, was badly frustrated at not being able to kill Baha'u'llah. Remember how he took a defected servant of a prominent Babi a few times to the Siachal to identify Baha'u'llah as a plotter. The servant had seen Baha'u'llah numerous times in his master's home, but in that prison every time he denied ever seeing Baha'u'llah before. Now the king is dead and he has one of the prized followers of Baha'u'llah in his vicious clutches. He, without the knowledge and authorization from the prime minister, rushed into the prison, taking a few attendants and executioners with him. He barged into the prison like a mad dog with his face red with rage. He shouted that all prisoners should be locked in chains and stocks. The terror-stricken prisoners, not knowing what had happened, went numb. Mirza Hossein writes, They took the four Baha'is chained together to the prison yard, supposedly for questioning. When we saw the soldiers on the rooftops with their guns pointing at us, and the executioners dressed in red, we sensed this was no trial. The attendant in charge of keys was ordered to unlock the chains of Varga and Ruhollah. The atmosphere was so tense that due to shaking of his hands he could not do it, and someone else had to do it. They took Varga and Ruhollah to a long corridor and slammed the door shut. When we saw an attendant bringing the bloody dagger of Hojeb to wash it in the courtyard pool, and then another man walking away with Varga's clothes, we knew what was done to him, but had no idea about Ruhullah. Then after a thumping sound, the doors were flung open, and the panic-stricken Hajib dashed out, saying, the other two should wait until tomorrow. That tomorrow never came. The timing of martyrdom was about two and a half hours 
before sunset. Mirza goes on to state, Then Haji Iman, Bagha's father-in-law, and I were taken back to the prison. We found our bedding and all belongings gone. We were so shocked and numb by what we saw in the courtyard that we sat speechless on the damp floor of the prison. How exactly Vargo and twelve-year-old Ruhullah were martyred, as brutal as it was, must be stated for the sake of history. How badly this narrator wishes that he could be excused from recounting such unspeakable atrocities. Friends, this is not an ordinary scene. This is the gory arena where ravenous, bloodthirsty beasts are unleashed against the innocent. This is the gruesome scene of martyrdom and sacrifice, and yet it is the sacred altar of love and immolation where Vargo's cherished desire was finally fulfilled. It is not for children and the tender-hearted to listen to. But before I pause for some to leave, or stopping the tape, let us realize that these two heavenly doves, having withered all kinds of turbulences, did not survive the fierce gales of this storm. With their physical wings broken, they laid down their lives as a sacrifice in the path of their Lord. Thus, the silver-tongued nightingale and his prized son Ruhollah winged their flight to the apex, to the eternal skies of the world of mysteries. Now there will be a pause. This is the ending of the story on that infamous May Day one century ago. Mirza Hussein states, As we sat down, stunned and unable to talk, the attendants surrounded us, discussing with laughter which piece of our clothing each one would be getting tomorrow. We were so numb that we did not care. I asked one of the attendants whom we had befriended to tell us the truth about what happened behind the closed doors of that long corridor. The attendant stated, As soon as the furious Hojib saw Vargo, he shouted at him, You finally did what you did. Vargo, not knowing about the assassination, quietly answered, He was unaware of having done anything wrong. Then Hajib asked Vargo, Do you want me to kill you first or your son? Vargo answered, It does not matter. The fiend pulled his dagger and plunged it into Vargo's stomach and asked him, How are you feeling? And shaken and undaunted, that symbol of courage, that steadfast hero, with his last breath exclaimed, 
I feel much better than you do. Then they fastened his head, and four executioners fell upon him, severing his arms and legs piece by piece, while the blood was gushing out like a fountain. Ruhullah, watching dismembering of his father, was crying out, O oh, father, O oh, dear father, take me, take me with you. The evil Hajib walked to Ruhullah and said, Do not weep. I shall take you with myself. We'll get you an allowance and obtain a post for you from the king. Ruhullah replied, I do not want your allowance or the post. I wish to join my father. Then he began to cry again. Defied and rejected, Hajib ordered a rope to hang him. But no rope could be found. So they put Ruhollah's tender neck in a loop of a bastinado post, where usually the ankles are placed. Two attendants, one on each end, lifted the post. They lifted Ruhollah until his convulsing body became limp. Then they laid his corpse on the ground. Hajibodole, that bloodthirsty fiend, was not finished yet. He ordered the other two Baha'is to be brought. As soon as the doors of the corridor were flung open, the corpse of Ruhollah sprang up and fell with a thud three feet away. This terrified the evil Hajib, who ran for the door, saying he will deal with the two others the next day. That next day was not to be. Because the political plot was discovered and the Baha'is were cleared, the new king, Muzaffaruddin Shah, was moderate and tolerant. Remember, Varga used to read poetry in the gatherings when he was a crown prince. Now he has the jeweled crown and Varga the crown of glory. Mirza Hussein and Haji Iman were released after a few months to recount the last months and the last hours in the lives of Varga and his twelve-year-old son, Ruhullah. They left for posterity the accounts of the unshakable constancy of the fearless poet and his son. No doubt, you knew with certainty that Baha'u'llah's promise was inevitable. But, nevertheless, the manner in which they were martyred was difficult to recount and heart-wrenching to hear. Before your wounded heart cries out, Where is justice? Permit me to read the following rendering of the history by Shoghi Effendi in God Passes By. Quote, Hojibodole, that bloodthirsty fiend who had so strenuously hounded down so many innocent and defenseless bobbies, fell in his turn a victim to the fury of the turbulent lords, who, after despoiling him of his property, cut his beard and forced him to eat it, 
saddled and bridled him, and rode him before the eyes of the people, after which inflicted under his very eyes shameful atrocities upon his women folk and children. End quote. This tragic and heroic story, the complexity and mystery of which is way beyond our comprehension, will befittingly end with a pleasant and uplifting note. Abdul Baha conferred the rank of Hand of the Code on Varga posthumously, and the Guardian designated him as an apostle of Baha'u'llah. His youngest son, Janabi Waliullahi Varga, became a trustee of Hawurullah and the Hand of the Cause during the ministry of Shogi Effendi. After his passing, Shogi Effendi appointed his eldest son, Dr. Ali Muhammad Varga, presently living, as a Hand of the Cause and the trustee of Hawurullah. As you notice, his name is after the name of his martyred and illustrious grandfather, the silver-tongued nightingale, Mirza Ali Muhammad Varga. What a unique family.